Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, given the state of contemporary culture, should Christians do more to set aside doctrinal differences and engage the great moral issues of the day? Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, get Ken's thoughts on that. But first, I want to make people aware of the latest resource from uh, Reasons to Believe. It's Designed to the Core, a book from Hugh Ross, and it's one of his best works yet. Uh, a culmination of decades worth of research and breakthroughs in science has led to the development of this great book. And as a member of the editorial team, I helped edit the book. And it's Hugh Ross at his finest. He shows how the largest scale structures of the universe, that is super clusters of galaxies, all the way down to processes in the Earth's core have been exquisitely designed. So he takes you through this cosmic tour of a, a great neighborhood all the way from the farthest reaches of the universe to the Earth's core. And Hugh has done a lot of research and brings the design right to our uh, eyes. So uh, you'll love the book, and it may not release widely until September, but we have exciting news to share with you today. For partners of our ministry, you'll be able to receive early access to the book before the launch date. To receive early access, all you have to do is visit reasons.org donate and make a donation of any amount to our ministry. And for those of you who already support RTB regularly, you can expect to receive the book early as well. All right, I hope you'll enjoy Hugh's latest book and benefit from it. And now on to our uh, discussion. Uh, Ken, in the last podcast, we talked about uh, uh, an aspect of the abortion debate, a particular question. And in light of that, you want to give uh, some uh, thoughts on just the state of our culture and how Christians can engage in light of great moral issues of the day. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to encourage our listeners to kind of think about the culture in which we're living today. I mean, for, for a long time, we've, we've seen the political landscape kind of described as, uh, you know, red states and blue states. People have talked about maybe a cultural civil war taking place. Uh, again, if I could relate back to being a boy when I was 10 years old in 1968, uh, 1968 was a very difficult time for America. Uh, not only was there two terrible assassinations, uh, the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, but also uh, Senator Robert Kennedy was killed within, within weeks of one another. I think it's only a matter of less than two months. And then later in the fall, there was a, a riot that took place at the Democratic Convention. And of course, the context for all of this, uh, Joe and Dave, was uh, the raging Vietnam War. And people thought, is our country kind of coming apart? Uh, can, can the government kind of control uh, the, the rebellion that's taking place in the world? Well, I remember those years. I, again, I was uh, pretty young. I was only 10 years old, but I, I remember them very clearly. And what's brought them to my, my memory is really the time during, the recent time during the pandemic, where there was a lot of social unrest, uh, you know, 
virtually the whole world was shut down. You know, there was lots of debates about, uh, you know, whether the government has the right to do these things, uh, controversies regarding, uh, you know, the vaccines that would later come. Uh, but it does seem to me that the time in which we're living seems, and I, I use the word seems because I'm, I'm an observer of culture, uh, but it seems like we are increasingly moving to a post-Christian culture. Now, again, I could be wrong about that, but uh, it, again, it seems that politically and socially, there are ideas that are being presented to the person today in the United States that probably wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. Mm. So I'd like, to, I'd like to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about these moral issues and both their moral context and their political context. All right, sounds good. Well, um, recently I was uh, on Twitter and I, I still haven't decided whether social media is an intrinsic good in life or not. It may be a necessary evil. I don't know. I'm still kind of working in my evaluation. But I, I follow a Christian thinker on Twitter. His name is Dr. John Mark Reynolds. Uh, I've met uh, Dr. Reynolds. In fact, he and I have participated in a couple debates about uh, issues relating to creation. Uh, Dr. Reynolds taught at Biola University for many years, uh, has now gone on uh, to working with uh, a, a school uh, that he develops. Uh, but he made, this, uh, he made this comment, very short, pithy comment. He said, most of life is not politics. Most of life is not politics. So I wrote back to him and I said, I, uh, I said, John Mark, I, I think your comment reveals something significant about our two-party political system. And of course, I'm thinking here of Democrats and Republicans. One party seems largely to reduce everything to politics and thus victory must come at virtually any cost. That might be a little overstated, but maybe not. Uh, the other party has strong political convictions, but views politics as one important part of life. And, you know, I, I think that may give us some, some explanation of uh, when we look at society, when we look at the world in which we live, how important are political issues? Well, I think everybody agrees politics is important, but is politics everything? Um, you know, when it comes to analysis, how do people look at the world? What informs their outlook on the world? Uh, I know from a Christian point of view, I think politics is very important. I believe government is ordained by God. I believe that an important part of my life is working, is uh, serving as a citizen. Uh, I take voting very seriously. I take my citizenship in America as an American citizen, very seriously, uh, but I don't. I don't view everything in political terms. Uh, I think it's a very important part of life, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all of of everything. I guess the point I'm making here is this: that I wonder, in the last fifty or sixty years, if the differences. Uh, concerning politics in America, and, and again, it, 
may have application to other countries as well. But it seems that the sharp differences politically may have more to do with worldview differences than they do with political differences per se. Um, again, when I was a boy, I was interested in politics because my father was. And I think uh, subconsciously, I kind of hoped that if I could engage in what my dad cared about, I might grow closer to him. He was kind of, uh, he was a World War II soldier and my dad was a little bit distant emotionally, but he was very passionate about uh, political ideas. Well, I remember him, you know, raising questions at the dinner table and we would talk about things that were happening in the world. And it, it seemed to me 50 or 60 years ago, about the time of my birth, it seemed, uh, Joe and Dave, that uh, in those days, people could, be, could have political differences. They might be Republicans or they might be Democrats, but they might often uh, cooperate across the, the political divide because they thought that there were things that were more important than their party differences. So again, I think of the 1960 election that I've read a lot about, uh, Richard Nixon, the Republican who was vice president for, for Eisenhower, John Kennedy, um, a Democrat senator from uh, Massachusetts. Well, there's been a lot of discussion of, in, that, in that political election about who was really the most conservative. In fact, there's a book that came out a number of years ago, uh, Kennedy, con the conservative. Uh, I don't know who was the more conservative candidate, but I, I know that when JFK gave his last speech before he was killed in Dallas, it was, a, it was a hawkish speech. It was a speech about America needing to stand up to bullies in the world. And I do know that JFK cut taxes. Well, here you could have, again, a Democrat and a Republican who might work across the aisle what I'm proposing here is this, that maybe the difficulty with the two-party system today is that it's increasingly difficult for them to uh, work across the aisle because the positions have become more worldview issues. Mm. And what I mean by that is many of these issues have become matters of life and death. Uh, what are those issues? Abortion, infanticide, stem cell research, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, whether passive or active, capital punishment and war. Uh, it seems the clash is now the result that it's pretty hard to cooperate with somebody if you have fundamental worldview differences. Now, now again, that doesn't rule out that the left has moved to the left, the political left has moved to the left, maybe the conservative has moved to the right. Maybe in the, the 1950s, early 1960s, there may have been a, a, a middle, um, but today that seems to, uh, to, have, uh, to have gone. And then of course it, it, it filters out in this way, there's also the creation mandate for those who embrace a revelatory Christianity, that God has created the world. He's created human beings in his image, and God uh, has revealed himself. I mean, 
think about the biblical ideas that come out of creation, marriage between one man and one woman, a, a lifetime commitment. Uh, what about sex and gender? Uh, this, of course, raises moral implications for topics like uh, homosexuality. How about sex trafficking? How about questions of just kind of general justice? So, you know, when I think about these political types of issues, um, I wonder that if you no longer believe in God, if you no longer accept a traditional view of God, and by a traditional view of God, I mean theism, or maybe more particularly a biblical theism, a Christian theism, where God is a personal being or super personal being that creates the world. Uh, and in Christianity, uh, the second person of the Trinity has come uh, to redeem humanity. Well, if you reject that worldview uh, and you say there is no God, there is no life after death, uh, then is it possible that people latch on to political ideas? They, they latch on to big picture ideas. They need some ultimate meaning or purpose or significance. And that quickly becomes environmentalism or it becomes some political perspective, you know, save the whales or whatever it may be. Human beings can't live without kind of ultimate type of issues. So for you and I, polit politics means one thing. For maybe somebody else who holds a different worldview, it means something very different. What do you think of that scenario? Go ahead, Dave. I'm, I'm tracking. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a, <laughs> it really is an, an issue that I, there's an emptying of this middle ground and this great polarization and neither side is willing, as I mentioned a little earlier when we were not on the air, of this tension that we have present in our society today over guns, where people refuse to countenance any kind of restriction. And it's exactly the same thing going on within the pro-life or, or uh, pro-abortion industry. They will countenance no restrictions whatsoever. So you don't have any kind of willingness to negotiate. You know, it, it, what seems interesting too is that, uh, you know, the education of our children, um, and not just children, it could extend it to the universities as well. Um, you know, when we're teaching, we're teaching people about science, we're teaching them about uh, philosophy or history or, you know, language. You can't teach these very important disciplines within a worldview vacuum. Uh, I mean, when we talk about the humanities, after all, well, what is a human being? And where do human beings come from? And what defines their humanity? And what is the proper destiny of, of a human being? It, it seems that some of these issues, again, are a, a, a clash of, of, of worldviews. Mm. And if I could talk a little bit about some of these moral issues, I mean, uh, again, in our previous program, we talked a little bit about abortion. 
but if if how do you view the the identity of the unborn are they human beings are they human persons do they have inherent dignity and value or are they just part of a woman's body does the woman have a right to do what she wants with her own body uh, those are very significant issues i mean i think about sexuality and um you know, it, it, it seems to me that a proper way of living your life is to realize that if you have sex with another person, let, let's say you're not married to that person and you have sex with that person, um, there's a real chance that uh, that person could become pregnant. You, uh, you would then be a father of some relationship. Um, it seems to me that you know the biblical ideas that uh, sexuality is a is a very important responsibility in life. Uh, that if you have sex with someone indiscriminately, uh, you may cause problems for for your so-called lover. You could cause problems for the children that would come out of that relationship. It it seems to me these biblical ideas that you know. Um, sex isn't just for fun. Sex involves procreation. Um, sexuality involves commitment. It, it involves things like love. Uh, it, it involves responsibility. And yet, you know, think of our, think of our, our culture, you know, the playboy philosophy, the playboy philosophy essentially is a male dominated view of life that women are, are simply playthings. They are uh, they're sexual objects. Um, whereas, whereas the Bible says that um, those other people are made in the image of God, that, that marriage is a, is a sacred thing. So when we kind of look at these issues, um, you know, abortion, somebody... A lot of times abortions are the result not of rape and incest or uh, these very rare and difficult types of circumstances. A lot of times the pregnancy happens to young women. It, it, it's, it's inconvenient and therefore they may or may not have any support from their, you know, their male lover, if, if you will. Or, uh, so again, these moral implications come out in terms of our worldview. How about infanticide? I mean, it used to be the idea, infanticide would be shocking. That would be the actual killing of a child. But what if you allow abortion right up to the time of birth? What if you were to allow um, parents to even abort the child after the child has been born? Now, again, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that would be you know, that you'd be thinking that could never happen. Those ideas are debated today by political figures. So abortion and fantasy come together. How about stem cell research? I mean, stem cells have shown to be uh, remarkable, remarkably helpful in terms of relating to various disease and things of that nature. But of course, it's, it's, uh, it's one thing to use embryonic stem cells. 
It's another thing to use adult stem cells where there isn't the cost of a human life. But can I, because I have a disease, let's say I have Parkinson's or I have some very serious disease, do I have the right to, uh, to take the stem cells from an embryo to harvest that? Uh, do I have that right simply because I'm, I'm born or my civilization gives me that right? How about physician-assisted suicide? Now, this course relates to euthanasia. Um, euthanasia raises the question of mercy killing. But I, I noticed during the pandemic, there was a movement in Europe um, uh, about what was called rational suicide, that people began to recognize that, you know, growing older isn't easy. It involves a lot of challenges, a lot of health difficulties. Uh, so some people began advocating that, hey, I don't want to get dementia. I don't want to be suffering with Alzheimer's. So I'm going to check out while I'm still okay. Mm. Or illness takes me down a difficult side. And, and so they were calling it rational suicide. Why not, why not leave before things get too bad? Well, what, what does that say about elderly people? I mean, what does that say about, uh, I, I, th I think it was Benjamin Franklin said, the problem is that, uh, you know, we, we age too quickly and wisdom comes too slowly. But, you know, what about people who have lived a lot of life? Uh, you know, should we kind of get rid of them uh, because they take up space and uh, they, they preoccupy our our economic, you know, kind of political context. And you know, um, my wife and I, we and our family lived in Holland, oh, 50 years ago, for a couple of years. And at that time, Holland was already toying with the idea of euthanasia, especially of older people. And the older people, when you talk to them, they're afraid. They're afraid that as they get older, their family is going to decide that they aren't worth saving anymore. They're too costly. We know that, for instance, the, the greatest amount of money is spent in the last year of a person's life to maintain health and do medical procedures. So it makes sense to get rid of them. And that caused a great deal of fear and anxiety on the part of the older people that we would talk to. This was 50 years ago. Can you imagine what it's like today where we are only further down the, the path with these ideas? There's another thing too that has struck me and that is that abortion is really not a primary issue. The primary issue is the, the, the demand on the part of people to be totally unrestricted in terms of the kinds of things they engage in morally. They want to have free. They want to have sex when they want it, and they don't want to have any kind of moral individual like a Christian telling them that uh, this is wrong. But if you want to have free sex, then as you have pointed out, any kind of sex can result in a child. And so, if you want free sex, you have to have abortion, because that's the way in which you get rid of the child that uh, interferes with. The, the freedom of your moral choices here.
and I think this is true in many of the areas. I, you know, I have uh, uh, individuals within my family who are medical doctors, and we often talk about medicine today. Medicine has become a, uh, in many cases, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for, for medical doctors and all the help that I've gotten, but what it's doing is it's providing people with the ability to live lifestyles that are totally unhealthy, but there's a pill that you can take that allows you to live that lifestyle and not die from it, not suffer the consequences. And I'm afraid that this is, you know, more and more the case that, that uh, they'll come up with medicines that allow you to live any way that you want and not suffer the consequences of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's really kind of staggering that, um, you know, the, the idea uh, that abortion, maybe, maybe the, the context of that is that people want to have sex whenever they want it. And the way to alleviate the problems that may result from a sexual encounter uh, is, is to abort the unborn child. I mean, that's, that, that's a staggering view, but it, it, it seems that, you know, that's arisen with these ideas of a a playboy lifestyle. I wanted to comment as well, Dave, uh, I know that you lived in Holland and I, I find that a powerful point about the elderly people being afraid that they would be disposed of you know they're they're not useful anymore, or they uh, they cost too much. And you're right. I mean the the insurance uh, bills goes up when people are are older. Two things stand out to me that um, there's two types of euthanasia. We call them passive and active euthanasia. Uh, passive euthanasia has typically been accepted by Christians, but it's the idea that uh, when a person gets older and they are death is very close or imminent, that you could choose not to uh, have extreme intervention uh, to, to allow the person to continue living. Uh, but, but again, it, it would be the idea that death is, is imminent, and so you're going to care for people. You, you can't cure them, but you don't have to use uh, extreme uh, means of keeping them alive. Uh, that's, that's again, known as, as, as passive euthanasia. Uh, you're kind of let nature take its course, if you will. It's right. the active euthanasia that's the deeply troubling one. And that is the person isn't necessarily uh, close to death, uh, uh, but you perform an action that actually causes them to die. So it'd be physician-assisted suicide. You know, the other thing I wanted to comment, Dave, is uh, when you talk about Holland, and you're exactly right, the Netherlands have been right at the forefront of becoming one of the most secular countries in all of Europe. And that's saying something. Right. Led the way in terms of secularism. But, you know, you go back 120 years to Abraham Kuyper, the great... uh, Dutch Reformed theologian, he was talking about, you know, the the Christian worldview and how Holland can and should accept a Christian perspective on life. And a hundred years later, I mean, that's almost gone. 
I mean, that's that's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. That in a hundred years it would move from Abraham Kuyper to physician-assisted suicide. Of course, now that now there are questions I have uh, for you two, by the way, and and that's it, it's simply to say this: if you would have told me, I, I think I think um, same-sex marriage was legalized what in 2015? Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, somewhere around there, maybe 2014. The, you're talking about the old Bergefell decision. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you would have told me even five years before that that, that was going to happen, I would have said, nah, no way. Mm-hmm. Well, now here's the question. What do you, what might happen 10 years from now? I mean, where, where's the country going? Mm-hmm. What, what, what is happening before I, now, now, now remember all the listeners, I want you to remember that Ken is, when it comes to eschatology, I like my eschatology like I like my fireworks, safe and sane. Hmm. So I'm not a predictor. I am a, I'm a pretty optimistic kind of guy. Dave and Hugh have been hammering on me to get me to be a premillennialist, but up until this point, I'm, I'm being pretty neutral so I can write books yeah. and talk about well, all this. What you're, what you're getting at, Ken, uh, I think is the importance of worldview thinking, which you talk about all the time on this podcast. Uh, And it it seems that our worldview has not aligned with uh, where we should be morally, at least in this country and perhaps uh, the Western world as well, uh, that we've gotten away from the Christian worldview or Judeo-Christian worldview largely and have adopted something else. Is that kind of what's behind this? That's exactly right, and um, uh, you know, I'm again, I'm I'm not predicting the end, but I am raising the question that uh, if I could, if I could have been so surprised by America adopting same-sex marriage as legal throughout the land, where will we be in ten years, twenty years? What what then will be, um, you know, suggested and. I mean, I look at the culture and I've watched, you know, uh, I probably watched far too much television in my life. I wonder how, I wonder how many great books I could have read had I not been watching television. One thing I've noticed from the television watching I do is that certain things today are accepted. You know, you might have a family life that is presented and certain relationships are taken for granted today, maybe, maybe homosexual relations, or again, uh, sec- a, an approach to sexuality that would be very different, you know, than when I was growing up, watching the Brady Bunch or, you know, some of those types of programs. So now the question is, where are we going? And are we moving increasingly toward a post-Christian society? Now, there's a couple of things I want to say at this juncture, and that is this. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? He said that, uh, that pre-Christian societies are easier to reach than post-Christian societies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. I mean, I'm a student of Christian history. Seems to me that within four or 500 years, Christianity had basically dominated the pagan world. In, in 400 years, the Christian worldview was so successful that all of these pagan tribes and religions had largely been converted to Christianity. 
But now, and you think about the 20th century, think about the 19th and 20th centuries in Europe. I mean, Europe was a Christian civilization after all, but by the 19th and 20th centuries, it had become largely post-Christian. Now, again, there are some changes. There are parts of Europe where Christianity is growing, and I think we also have to give the positive side. Um, I know, for example, that Christianity is, is growing in what we call the global south, not in the global north. So continents like Africa and Asia, Christianity is growing significantly, not so much in North America or Europe. So there's, there's changes that are, are indeed taking place. But again, I, I, I come back to that, that question it's harder to reach. I think Lewis is right. It's harder to reach people who said, oh, I've tried that. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, uh, in response to your uh, question, where are we headed? Uh, you're correct. I just looked it up. The Obergefell versus Hodges was 2015. So here we are seven years later and we've, we've come a long way. <laughs> Some would say a long way downward. Uh, so where are we headed in the next seven years? Um, would, would you see it possible, and it, you talked about not wanting to go down the eschatological route, but do you think it might be possible that, uh, say, Christianity would become illegal in some fashion in, in some countries, including the U.S.? Well, you know, these, I think, are, are very legitimate questions. It, again, my own my own take, my own approach is I tend to look at Christian history as a whole, and it seems that there are various places in church history where Christianity is advancing, where it's ascending, where it's expanding. It seems like the whole world is becoming Christian, optimistic. Then there are other times where Christianity is contracting, where Christians are either under persecution or Christianity has grown cold. So I think there, you know, when people say, well, we must be moving toward the second coming, my, often my thought is, well, I think my parents probably had a better reason for thinking that when two world wars, uh, you know, you think of the, the difficulties that happened uh, in, the, in the 20th century, uh, why wouldn't all of those concerns be true? I don't necessarily think, Joe, that um, uh, this is kind of uncommon. I think there have been times. I mean, think of the very first century. Nero is on the throne. Uh, and even the Apostle Paul says, submit to government when Nero's on the throne. So there have been numerous times. And, and I, think of, uh, I think of Eastern Christianity in particular. Uh, in Eastern Christianity, we think of it largely today in terms of kind of the Eastern Orthodox. Well, they have had a long, difficult relationship with the religion of Islam, uh, being, being pushed, being persecuted by, by Islamic forces. And then in the 20th century, communism, secularism, pushing. I think the Eastern, Eastern Christendom has suffered more than Western Christendom. But I think, you know, if, if you ask that question, did, uh, did the acceptance of 
the legalization of same-sex marriage, did that surprise you? Well, um, could something like that be in our future, in our near future, where your convictions, your moral convictions would be viewed as being hateful? Mm. And, well, you know, I, I think that along that line, you asked the question, what could be next? It, it seems to me that those in the community that are pushing for uh, the same-sex marriage and transition, gender transition, and all of these kinds of things that we think you know would never have happened are now happening, they're not happy with just uh, being able to have the freedom to do this. They want everybody's approval. And so I think the we're going to see more and more uh, the Christian community uh, changing its mind about a lot of these things and not being uh, biblical in standing up against this view. And so more and more, at least mainline denominations are going to support these viewpoints. And I think that it's going to neutralize the, the Christian institution, at least, if not the Christian witness on the part of those individuals that choose to, in the face of maybe persecution, like you just said, uh, choose to stand up for what we consider as biblical and right. Well, you know, that, that kind of leads me to where I, I want to go next. And, and uh, Dave, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, I talk a lot about Christianity. I talk a lot about Christendom. I'm a, I'm a student of Christian history. I love Christian history. I, I have a, a real passion uh, to understand uh, the 2000 year history of my faith. Uh, but Dave, you, you've touched upon, you know, the mainline churches. Um, again, uh, we often use the word liberal in terms of a political context, but here we're using it theologically, that there are progressive liberal churches. Um, and again, for the last couple hundred years, there's a move away from Trinitarianism to Unitarianism. There's a movement away of, of uh, of instead of viewing Jesus, who is the Savior, who comes into the world and is crucified, uh, rather the thought is, well, you know, the message of Jesus and Christianity is, you know, loving your neighbor and, and being kind and being inclusive. And, you know, Jesus doesn't believe in war and he doesn't believe in many of these political issues that religious people care about. So, so it seems like we have a Christ without a cross. Mm. You know, we, we, have, we have a God with no wrath. Um, and that's a very, that's a very different, different position. And it's easy for politics and religion to be mixed together. I mean, think of the controversy uh, that we experience today about political parties. Think about think about what a lightning rod uh, President Trump was. I mean, these are, these are very uh, critical issues. Now, what I'd like to say in light of all of these, uh, these things we've been talking about is, is it possible that when Christians face uh, challenging times in the future, whether it's 
liberal theology, whether it's secularism, whether it's the breakdown of the moral culture in which we live, uh, what is that? What is that then going to mean for Christians of different stripes and denominations that live in the world? Um, now, again, there are real differences that Christians have. Uh, I write about those in my latest book, Christianity Cross-Examined, that some people think there are intractable differences between the three branches of Christendom, Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism. And even among Protestants, when I'm on Facebook, got the Calvinist on one side and the, the uh, Molinist or the Wesleyan on the other. I mean, they seem to, did seem to disagree about everything. Um, but it does then raise the question, is it possible we can, we can cooperate with other Christians, even if we might differ with them, even if we might have different eschatological views, even if we might have different views about the authority of the church versus the authority of the Bible, that people who basically hold a Christian worldview uh, can come together and say, look, um, we believe that the unborn are human beings, that they have inherent dignity and value. Uh, as, as Christians of differing stripes, um, we think it's always wrong uh, to take the life of a child. Uh, you know, we also don't think you should strip an embryo of its stem cells, uh, especially when adult stem cells might work uh, well in that context. Or the idea that a physician who takes the Hippocratic Oath to save life uh, should not be in a position where they're giving drugs that would lead a person to, to end their life. Um, capital punishment. Uh, now, th now, that's a controversial one because Christians disagree about it. Uh, some Christians think that pro-life should include uh, no execution of people, even people who've committed uh, mortal crimes, murder. Other Christians say, no, we think, uh, we think capital punishment is right. And if you steal the life of another person, the government ought to have a right to potentially take your own. So that would be a difference. War, I mean, think of what's happening today in Ukraine, in Russia. Um, there are issues happening there that haven't happened in Europe since the Second World War. War crimes. Um, how do we then relate to those kinds of issues? Seems to me that maybe it is a time where Christians can appreciate each other uh, I'm not saying the differences are ever going to go away. I, I don't know how to resolve some of these differences. Seems to me that you can take different positions on, on the issues of authority, uh, the authority of the Bible, the authority of the church. Uh, it also seems to me there are differences in terms of the way Christians talk about grace, faith, and works, devotion to Mary, devotion to the saints. These issues I don't see going away. Uh, but I, I do wonder, um, given our cultural situation, we might want to think about how can we cooperate. And, and again, I, uh, I wonder if unity is not something Christians take too easily because they don't see it as a value. Um, 
you know, uh, again, we like to be right. I have the right view of baptism, or I have the right view of the second coming, or I have the apostolic view of authority. Um, it, it may be as we live in a post-Christian culture, we'll, we'll see what I call worldview allies. And by the way, that could even extend to uh, believing Jews. It could extend to even Mormons. It could extend to people outside of historic Christianity. Uh, there may be values that are, are very important, a, a moral valued consensus, if you will. Um, so those are some of the ideas that I've been thinking about in terms of this, this, uh, this discussion. And, and again, I, I'd like to draw attention to uh, this Catholic document. It's called Evangelium Vitae. It's written by Pope John Paul II. John Paul was, of course, Polish. Uh, he had a very difficult time because the Nazis devastated his country. I, I think the Poles suffered so much, not only from the Nazis, the invading Nazis, because remember, World War II started in Europe, uh, September 1st, 1939, when the German army invaded Poland. And the Brits and the French were obligated to stand up for them. That was the beginning of World War II. But of course, the Poles... Uh, those who survived the Nazi onslaught, they then were dominated by the communists. And um, John Paul was uh, a very bold Christian thinker. Uh, he was the philosopher type. If Benedict XVI, a very close friend of John Paul, was the theologian, I think we could call John Paul the philosopher. Uh, and I, as I mentioned in the previous show, John Paul has now been uh, given the status of sainthood. So he casts a very influential shadow in the Catholic Church. He authored a document, Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. And uh, there's one section where it talks about the incomparable worth of human, the incomparable worth of the human person. Um, wow, what if, what if people in our time uh, looked around them and said, the people that we encounter have an incomparable worth. I mean, when I'm driving to work in the morning and there's a lot of cars on the freeway, I'm not thinking about the incomparable worth of these other drivers. Um, you know, them. And there are times when I'm on social media and I interact with people and I'm not thinking about their incomparable worth. I'm thinking this, this guy's difficult or this person is troubling to me. But, you know, that's who our neighbors are. Our neighbors are people who have been made in the image of God. And they have value and they have dignity. And, and even if we don't like them, and even if these people trouble us, uh, their identity is image bearers. And, um you know, these are these. I think are things that we should think about. Uh, Joe, you mentioned the idea of a worldview. I talk a lot about worldviews because I really think it's it's a value that it gives us an opportunity to talk about what do people really believe, what motivates their fundamental beliefs, their fundamental values, um, what is that Christian worldview, and. Um, so if some of these topics are, 
are meaningful to you or helpful to you, I, I want to encourage people to consider my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, where I talk about the image of God and I talk about how that image then affects moral issues like abortion, euthanasia. In my book, Christianity Cross-Examined, I talk about the question of, is Christendom hopelessly divided? Then I offer some practical advice about how we might become more united. Uh, may, again, maybe there will never be a, a universal Christianity, but it, but it could be that Christians in denominations could, could you know, strive toward greater unity. So these are issues that I try to address, and there are topics that I like to talk about on our, our program, Straight Thinking, because uh, Joe and Dave, I, I think the way we think affects the very people we become, if you will. Yeah. Ken, as an application of what you're talking about, that is Christians uh, setting aside their differences in light of a, an important cultural moral issue, would this be uh, an example of that? Let's say uh, there's an opportunity for some churches in a given area who otherwise uh, have their disagreements to rally around and get together and bring on a, uh, a pro-life speaker and maybe someone uh, who's not uh, to support the debate so that people can become educated on the issues and learn what each side has to say. Would that be... Uh, an application of this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think education is, is very valuable and, and Christians have a long history of being bookish people. Or, you know, the, the very foundation, uh, the founding of our country were, were largely Christians who took issues of uh, politics very seriously. Uh, I think it could manifest itself in that way. I, I think of other ways, Joe. Um, maybe Christians of different denominations who uh, are part of a particular locale could get together and think about, you know, how do we respond to this, uh, this challenge of, of homelessness? What, what, do, what do we do? Are there, are there things where we could, we could uh, combine our resources and, and reach out, maybe supporting uh, opportunities for people to get mental health, mental health care? or maybe feeding people, uh, you know, opening up soup kitchens, uh, whatever it may be, or, you know, maybe there's some type of counseling. I mean, the, the homeless issue is, is a many splendored thing. There, there are many people who have serious mental health problems. There are also people who suffer deep addiction. Then there are people who, uh, you know, they, they've had economic difficulties, a loss of a job, They've never been able to get back on their feet. You know, what, what could people in a church do, you know, because you have, you have homeless problems in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in New York. What can churches do in, in those kind of contexts? I, um, I think God acts in the world largely through his church. So here's my challenge. What if the Christian church, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, you know, whatever, whatever, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, what if the Christian church actually got its act together? What, what would be the influence in the world? And, 
you know, as, as Yaroslav Pelikan, the great Yale historian said, uh, the church is always more than a school. It's a lot of things, it's, it can, but it can't be less than a school. The church should be a place where we educate our people, where we equip them uh, for ministry. I, I know at the church I attend, uh, you know, we, we, we collect clothing for people who are homeless, you know, uh, there are times we'll raise, uh, you know, people bring in the socks where people can have a brand new pair of socks. There are other times we, we prepare these uh, little boxes uh, for children in various parts of the world. And I think, well, there's, there's the love of Christ. There are these people. And, you know, uh, again, I'm a, I'm a thinker. I'm a theologian. I love ideas. But I have to be reminded, what practical things can I do? So I think there are many things that we can do, Joe. Education, uh, trying to tackle some of these issues, trying to make people's lives better, but also holding them accountable and responsible and teaching them, uh, you know, not giving them a fish, but teaching them how to fish so then they can go out and begin to see changes in their life. Um, I don't know where the church will be going in the future. Uh, ultimately, it'll we'll see the Lord's coming, and we'll live in eternity, and uh, we'll live and reign with Him forever. Uh, but I, I I think these the times in which we live give us an opportunity to think deeply about what should we be doing with our lives. Wow. Very good advice. Thank you for that, uh, Dave. I don't know if you had anything. No, I add to it, but thank you. All right. In that case, we're going to wrap it up uh, here on this edition of Straight Thinking. Um, Ken, you mentioned a couple of your books. Uh, I just want to read a couple of comments that have come in. People have been reading your books and appreciating them. So uh, we thank you for reading those books and thanks for uh, commenting and keep it up. Here's one that's come in. Ken, I just got back into a world of difference. It's a mini education for sure and very helpful. I've urged many people over the last several years to get a copy, Madden Winemaker. And here's another one. Mere Christianity is one of my absolute favorite books and you introduced me to it. So thank you. That's from Kelly Lane. All right, well, we're, we're glad to hear those. Uh, Ken, I don't know if you want to comment on that uh, but yeah i do i you know uh one of the things uh, one of the one of the things i feel very passionately in life is is introducing people to books uh books have 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 had a big influence on me i know dave passes out books to his doctors and neighbors and people like that and uh you know the book i wrote classic christian thinkers was largely written with the idea of helping people take that next step and read some of these great Christian books. So your Christianity had a huge impact on me, and I'm glad to hear that it's influencing others in a similar way. Yeah. Well, you turned me on to Augustine's Confessions. I had read Mere Christianity before, and I've read it uh, again, of course, but uh, I had not, I wasn't even, even aware of the Confessions by St. Augustine, but now, uh, I've read it a couple of times at least and referred to it, and it's like, uh, you're right, you find yourself in Augustine's prayer. Uh, it's just wonderful because his experiences, 
from way back when he wrote it seem like our experiences now. So oh, keep, keep up the recommendations. And thank you, listeners, for uh, letting us know uh, what you think. I'll add a couple more of Ken's books here for your summer reading list if you have not read them already, Christianity Cross-Examined and Classic Christian Thinkers. So if you have not picked up those, those are among Ken's latest. Be sure and uh, read those. You'll be glad that you did. Keep those comments and questions coming. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore case samples. All right, that's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.